you have reached a phone call from Paul. A Literary Hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Part 1 of Paul Holden Graber's Conversation with Adam Phillips. Hello. Hello, Adam. Thank you for taking my call. How are you? I'm okay. What 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 are you what are you up to? What am I up to today? Yes. Yeah. Today I've been well now I'm in my office talking to you, but I have been writing until now. And did you have you been writing for a long time? Yes, I've been writing from about six thirty this morning. My goodness! So you 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 arrive at around six o'clock to to start writing. I arrive around six thirty-ish, and I start then. And and how do you get yourself started? I don't really know. The experience is that because I know that I'm going to be writing on Wednesday, I assume that this kind of unconscious preparation goes on, so that literally as I walk to work on Wednesday morning the first sentence or something approximating the first sentence comes to mind so that when I get into the office, I start virtually immediately. We once took that walk between your home and your office mm. and it isn't, it isn't very, there isn't a great distance between the office where, I, 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 where you see your patients and write and your home. So there isn't but much... It's, it's literally about a five-minute walk. So there isn't much time for you to happen upon a first sentence? No, there isn't. But I think that, and that's why I sort of assume that, you know, there's been some preparation. I mean, I don't, of course, the experience is that there's nothing in my mind, and then there's something in my mind, something occurs to me. And I sort of infer or assume that there's been kind of unconscious thinking going on, but I don't know that. All I know is that I walk to work, and at a certain point, something occurs to me, which I know to be the first sentence that I'll start with. And is that first sentence always kept as a first sentence? Yes, it's always kept as a first sentence. It sometimes might be modified in the, in the writing of it, but it's always the first sentence. It never gets replaced. And, and you need that first sentence in order to... Yes, to... I, yes I literally couldn't start without it. So it's a bit, you know, either there's a first sentence or there's nothing. And do you, I mean, I, 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 I happen to know that you have this regimen, as one might say, of writing once a week and for the last three decades, always once a week, or more or less always once a week. And does that, is that correct, first of all? Yes, it is correct, yeah. And it's always been on a Wednesday? Well, originally, when I worked in the National Health Service, it, and before I had children, it was a Saturday. So I'd work five days a week as a child psychotherapist in the health service, and then on Saturdays I would come to my office and write. When I had children, I didn't want to use the weekends, so that I then uh, set aside Wednesday in the middle of the week to do it. But it was always one day. And I never want I never want more time to write, if you see what I mean. It works for me. It's like a form that, that I found that works. And, it, and it's a form 
I mean, one of the most amazing things we've we've discussed in the past, Adam, is that it's a form that works for you, but it doesn't fill you with trepidation to take that five-minute walk. Um, I assume mostly come up with that first sentence, sit down and write, and you're not filled with the anguish we so often hear about in, in writers. No, I have no trepidation at all. I have, in a way, the opposite, which is a tremendous kind of excitement. I wake up on Wednesday morning often really very excited and very keen to get to write. And I very much look forward to it when I'm actually writing something. Um, so, no, there's no trepidation. And it's a bit like a sort of... Um, I don't want to be cute about this, but it's a bit like a sort of excited curiosity. I really wonder what's going to turn up. And are you surprised? Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, not not amazed, sometimes amazed, but I'm always a bit surprised because I, of course, I literally don't plan it. And that, I think, is part of the pleasure of it. It wouldn't be a pleasure, I think, if I had to write for a living because I think then I would have the economic pressure and the need to have some fantasy about a market and about making something that will sell or that people will like, whereas I'm in the fortunate position of not having to worry much about that. So I can be much more in my own delirium. So, so why do you write? I don't really know the answer to the why question. Uh, I can only say that it gives me a great deal of pleasure. And I wasn't one of these children who, you know, was always writing stories, nor did I have any ambition consciously as an adolescent to be a writer. I really wanted to be a reader, as I've said to you before. And then when I started writing, it almost as though it took... And something about it was fantastically pleasurable and exciting and interesting to me. And so once it started, it really has never stopped. It could stop in the future, but it, it really never stopped. And, and it took with, with a letter you wrote to a famous literary critic. Well, it took, I mean, I wrote a letter to Frank Commode proposing I write a book on Winnicott in a series he had. But it really started properly when I set aside... I think it was a month. I took a month off work to write the book on Winnicott and spent three weeks literally unable to do anything. And in the final week, it was as though at a certain point something took me to what was then the typewriter and I started writing. And once it started, it really never stopped. And so it's as though so far there's no end to it. Um, I mean, so that, for example, I write on Wednesdays. Once I've started writing whatever I'm writing, it has a kind of internal momentum so that if I need to, I can carry on with what I'm writing between sessions with people without being distracted either from the writing or indeed from the sessions. It's a bit like it's going on in a separate part of my mind so that I can uh, not exactly switch it on, switch it off, but I can tune back into it in the intervals when I need to. As though the writing is it's not exactly doing it itself, but it's sort of doing itself. Is it, is it kind of a parallel life? Um, yes and no. I mean, it's not totally dissociated, because I very often recognize what I'm writing. But I didn't know beforehand I was going to write what I, in fact, write, end up writing. Do you feel that your your patients are, are envious of of your ability to just get to it? I don't know that. I mean, I say I don't want to talk about them in public, but I I I don't know that. I certainly don't get the set. Don't get that sense. No, because you know, I 
I I have when hearing you, and you you're always so consistent about this about um, nearly a non-romantic view of writing. Um, uh, there may be a great romance in writing, but there isn't the Sturm und Drang that you know you often hear writers both today and and of yesterday talk about. I I I feel, I feel such. I don't know if it's envy, but I, I, I would love to someday arrive at that kind of discipline. And I think that... I think, yeah, I think it's, it's for the reasons you've said that I feel reticent about it, or I feel slightly, not embarrassed exactly, but I'm not keen to talk about it a lot. Right. Because it, it sounds like boasting, if you see it, and maybe it is boasting, but it's, it's actually a description of what happens. And I think there is, some, there is a kind of romance in it, because I think it's a version of feeling inspired. I don't mean this in some grandiose sense, but it's a bit like automatic writing. And, and I, I don't feel keen to talk about it, because it's a bit like making a claim and the actuality of doing it feels no more than a sort of extraordinary kind of private pleasure, something I just have access to. Um, and I'm aware of the way in which it could be enviable, but I'm also aware of the sense in which there are people who would say, yes, exactly, he doesn't work at it. You know, it's just a facility. Right. With right. ease. So I think it cuts both ways, this. I think for some people it's enviable, and for some people it's sort of contemptible. Um, I, I think I find myself in one in one of those in one of those camps. Um, I, I must say, I, I reread last night um, the first sentence of your extraordinary essay. I find, which I'm still trying to decipher against self-criticism in your in your forthcoming book in America, Unforbidden Pleasures, and. I'm going to read that first sentence. I, I find it extraordinary, and I wonder if that first sentence came to you uh, on that walk. You start with two forbidding words, and then we are, at least I am, irresistibly drawn to finishing that first sentence and surprised by what you come up with. You say, Jacques Lacan famously remarked that there must surely be something ironic about Christ's injunction to love thy neighbor as thyself, because actually people hate themselves. I'm sorry that the two words Jacques Lacan are intimidating. I think it's a shame for him and a shame for us. I know it's true for a lot of people, because actually... Um, Lacan, if one doesn't, as it were, take him too seriously, or take him with the wrong kind of seriousness, is really very entertaining and interesting about lots of things. It's a shame that there's a sort of elite cult around the name, because the, it makes the writing forbidding in a way it needn't be. The reason that the quote interests me is because uh, it's a bit like, it has that... Um, sort of, for me, pointed and amusing quality that Nietzsche often has, in which something is turned round in a rather unexpected way. I don't actually believe that everybody hates themselves, but I do believe that everybody's more than capable of self-hatred. But I think what it does for me, and I think why it intrigues me, is that on the one hand, I think, it's very extraordinary to live, to have lived a life 
in a time when somebody came up with the idea that you could love everybody, that you could love your neighbor as yourself. That seems to be a wonderful and interesting idea of Christ's, if it was his idea. And then psychoanalysis comes along in the name of Lacan and says, well, actually, people don't love themselves, they hate themselves. And so what it is for me is not a statement of fact, but a provocation. It makes you think, makes me think about what it might mean to love one's neighbors, oneself, what it might mean to love oneself, and what hating oneself actually involves. And I think the essay in Unforbidden Pleasures uses this, the, the thing as a springboard, really, to go into that. I, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's both interesting as a, as a first sentence, and it's also fascinating in the context of of the book as a whole, this collection of essays, because I see in this kind of time bomb and reversal um, in Lacan, the same kind of time bomb and reversal in Oscar Wilde, uh, which the book starts out with. There, there, there is always in, in Wilde this, this ability to um, make you sort of um, smile and then realize that the joke might be on you. Yes, well, there's what, there, there's what Freud calls the laughter of unease in the sense of you can see both, exactly as you've said, that there's a strange sort of self-reflexive thing going on. You wonder who the joke's on. But also you realize the incredible intelligence in jokes or the incredible intelligence in Wilde's jokes because they... It seems to be wonderful that you can be both amused and provoked and intrigued and kind of inspired. And and unlike jokes in the way that you've written about it in, in other essays, um, it's not exactly in Wilde a question of getting it. Because actually, oh. to some extent... Um, one doesn't quite get it. One of my favorite quotations of Wilde, which I'm misquoting slightly, um, is, it is only superficial people who do not judge by appearance. Yeah. Which is so complex. Yes, exactly. And I think you're right. I think that the reason these quips work is because you get them and don't get them at the same time. In other words, you're, you're aware that there's more going on here than you've apprehended. But there's a lot going on. And, and the fact that they're, in a way, throwaway remarks means you can't throw them away. And we don't. Um, I mean, but we don't. And we don't. And, and by we, I actually mean, I mean in this particular moment, I, I, I mean you and I, Adam. Um, it's a, I, I think we, we share this, this, um, this appetite, as it were, to um, recycle um, quotations in different contexts, I, when I speak with people, you, when you write uh, and speak about what you've written, because uh, the quotations in some way work as signposts along along the way of our life and of our intellectual and other discoveries. Yes, but they also, I think that's right, but they also um, show us the ways in which we're kind of made up of many disparate voices and people. So that, um, you know, we're talking in and out of quotation marks all the time. And that the way we speak and think is really informed by the other people we've talked to, the people we've read, 
the, all the verbal exchanges we've had. So the quotations, I mean, obviously they can, use, they can be used pretentiously, they can be used for affectation, they can be used snobbishly, but they can also be used as a kind of repertoire of people, the people who it feels as if they've spoken on our behalf. They've really illuminated something. They've said something either that we go on endlessly being interested in or they've said things that we've thought or we might have thought, but we've never quite been able to put it. And, you know, it's, it's a bit like, I can only put this psychoanalytically, but the, the happily dependent part of oneself thinks how wonderful it is to live in a world where other people have thoughts and feelings and say things we couldn't have thought of ourselves. And the unhappily dependent part of ourselves always thinks, shit, why couldn't I have thought of that? The unhappily dependent part of ourselves being envious and not liking the fact that other people have different experiences and words and so on. Well, for me, I think it's like that. It's, it's, it's a kind of pleasure at its best in the fact that all there, there are a number of people, and it must be very selective, who've said things that... I suppose I really want said, or I want to go on thinking about, or I want to share with other people. And that's a version of communal life, I suppose, and of tradition. You know what it makes me think of? It makes me, the, the way you are describing this, of happily and unhappily dependent, it, it makes me, first of all, wonder, um, are we all made more or less of one or the other? And are we more or less off balance um, more happily dependent or more unhappily dependent and possibly we are all of that at different times more in one regard or less in another regard as we age um, I think that's in, right, in, I mean I think we're I don't know who the we is here but yeah. <laughs> we're both we're always both but I do think, you know, and this is where I think psychoanalysis is useful and interesting I do think it as they say, depends upon something to do with one's childhood experience. That if you've had parents who allowed you to enjoy your dependence on them and who were sufficiently responsive, then dependence is more of a pleasure. If you have parents who were troubled by your dependence on them or who exploited it in some way, then it's much more difficult. And I think, again, we have all had a bit of both, but the, the, the degrees matter here a lot. Another aspect of, of that comment that made me really think is that if we are happily dependent on what others have said, perhaps better than we could ever say, though we try in some way to, to, to frame what they've said in our own language, if, if that is the situation we find ourselves in, which I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to say is the situation I mostly find myself in, even if I'm sort of happily, unhappily dependent in some way. Um, it, it makes you also feel that you're not alone. Yes, you're not alone and that there's company and also that the only resources we've got are each other. And that can be, sometimes at least, a, a considerable resource. And, and when, you were, when you were speaking just a moment ago about the kinds of parents we, we have, um, whether they, they, they um, give us a, the, the feeling that being dependent on them is 
perhaps a pleasure for them or or not is that to say that as we grow up we we always in some way um are dependent on how we were with them in childhood well no in a way i think i mean i think the risk is to suggest that um you know everything depends on our parenting well, there's more to us than our parenting i i agree um but or and Clearly, those first exchanges we have with other people are going to be powerfully formative. They're going to set a kind of blueprint or a, a pattern or a way of relating to people. Not one that can't be modified by future relationships, but it's, the, but it's an informing presence. 